Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. 
I have got a wonderful snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Janice Hazelhurst, Jamie Holding Eagle, Neo, Shane, and Isabel. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, all the names that I just read are amazing new patrons on Patreon.com, which is a website where you can support creators of the work that you like. So the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's sleep and you'd like to be a part of making this show and have your name read in the opening credits amongst other cool perks for donating, just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Even a dollar goes a long way. That's patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kana. Well, it is now the third Christmas episode of the Sleepy Podcast. Really hard to believe that I've been doing this this long, and I'm just so happy to do it. Um, And Christmas episodes are, I think, my favorite to do. Because they're just very peaceful, and it's definitely the season where you really want to kind of burrow and get good sleep and treat yourself right. And read good books, maybe by a fire while it's cold outside. One of my favorite Christmas books that I've ever read was Old Christmas by Washington Irving. Washington Irving, um, he wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and his book Old Christmas is so, so beautiful. And I remember reading that last year And I remember I was uh, on a beach in South Carolina. I just started a cross-country trip in this van that you probably have heard me talk about. I had the back doors open, and it was sunny out, and the waves were crashing on the beach while I was reading a Christmas book. That was a really wonderful feeling. It was the first time I had spent Christmas in anywhere that wasn't just piling up with snow like my home does in Vermont well this year since some of you have been wondering where I am I'm very hunkered down in Ludlow Vermont right now in a really cozy little apartment and for the first time in a long time I'm nesting and staying still and not exactly looking out the window wondering where the next places that I'll go. I'm just enjoying being here. Right now, especially because the other night we got 44 inches of snow in a night. It's uh, up past my waist and it's gorgeous, fluffy snow and it's cold out. And it's a perfect time to just stay inside and be cozy and read books like this one. Feels very Christmassy right now. So, 
I'm going to pick up where I left off on Old Christmas by Washington Irving with the chapter Christmas Eve. I want to wish you all a very, very Merry Christmas. I know it's been a crazy year and you might not be able to get home to your family this year, but give people a call and uh, make sure they all know that you appreciate them. And um, I think there's a way that even with the craziness of this year, we can spend this season being very, very grateful for the people that we have in our lives, even if we can't see them in person this year. So just know that I'm very, very grateful for you. Uh, it's so nice to know that you're on the other end of this microphone, and I love reading you to sleep. So, that's enough of me yapping. Merry Christmas. This is the chapter Christmas Eve from the book Old Christmas by Washington Irving. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. Christmas Eve. It was a brilliant, moonlit night, but extremely cold. Our chase whirled rapidly over the frozen ground. The postboy smacked his whip incessantly, and a part of the time the horses were on a gallop. He knows where he is going, said my companion, laughing, and is eager to arrive in time for some of the merriment and good cheer of the servants' hall. My father, you must know, is a bigoted devotee of the old school and prides himself upon keeping up something of old English hospitality. He is a tolerable specimen of what you will rarely meet with nowadays in its purity, the old English country gentleman. For our men of fortune spend so much of their time in town and fashion is carried so much into the country that the strong, rich peculiarities of ancient rural life are almost polished away. My father, however, from early years, took Honest Peachum for his textbook instead of Chesterfield. He determined in his own mind that there was no condition more truly honorable and enviable than that of a country gentleman on his paternal lands and therefore passes the whole of his time on his estate. He is a strenuous advocate for the revival of the old rural games and holiday observances, and is deeply read in the writers, ancient and modern, who have treated on the subject. Indeed, his favorite range of reading as among the authors who flourished at least two centuries since, who, he insists, wrote and thought more like true Englishmen than any of their successors. 
He even regrets, sometimes, that he had not been born a few centuries earlier, when England was itself, and had its peculiar manners and customs. As he lives at some distance from the main road, in rather a lonely part of the country, without any rival gentry near him, he has that most enviable of all blessings to an Englishman, an opportunity of indulging the bent of his own humor without molestation. Being representative of the oldest family in the neighborhood, and a great part of the peasantry being his tenants, he is much looked up to, and in general is known simply by the appellation of the squire, a title which has been accorded to the head of the family since time immemorial. I think it's best to give you these hints about my worthy old father, to prepare you for any little eccentricities that might otherwise appear absurd. We had passed for some time along the wall of the park, and at length the chase stopped at the gate. It was in a heavy, magnificent old style, of iron bars, fancifully wrought at top into flourishes and flowers. The huge square columns that supported the gate were surmounted by the family crest. Close adjoining was the porter's lodge, sheltered under dark fir trees and almost buried in shrubbery. The postboy rang a large porter's bell, which resounded through the still, frosty air, and was answered by the distant barking of dogs, with which the mansion house seemed garrisoned. An old woman immediately appeared at the gate, as moonlight fell strongly upon her. I had full view of a little primitive dame, dressed very much in the antique taste with a neat kerchief and stomacher, and her silver hair peeping from under a cap of snowy whiteness. She came curtsying forth with many expressions of simple joy at seeing her young master. Her husband, it seems, was up at the house, keeping Christmas Eve in the servants' hall. They could not do without him, as he was the best hand at a song and story in the household. My friend proposed that we should alight and walk through the park to the hall, which was at no great distance, while the chase should follow on. Our road wound through a noble avenue of trees, among the naked branches of which the moon glittered as she rolled through the deep vault of a cloudless sky. The lawn beyond was sheeted with a slight covering of snow, which here and there sparkled as the moonbeams caught a frosty crystal, and at a distance might be seen a thin, transparent vapor stealing up from the low grounds and threatening gradually to shroud the landscape. My companion looked round him with transport. How often, said he, have I scampered up this avenue on returning home on school vacations? How often have I played under these trees when a boy? 
I feel a degree of filial reverence for them as we look up to those who have cherished us in childhood. My father was always scrupulous in exacting our holidays and having us around him on family festivals. He used to direct and superintend our games with the strictness that some parents do the studies of their children. He was very particular that we should play the old English games according to their original form and consulted old books for precedent and authority for every time Mary Dispore. Yet I assure you that there never was pedantry so delightful. It was the policy of the good old gentleman to make his children feel that home was the happiest place in the world, and I value this delicious home feeling as one of the choicest gifts a parent can bestow. We were interrupted by the clangor of a troop of dogs of all sorts and sizes. Mongrel, puppy, whelp and hound, and the curs of low degree. That, disturbed by the ringing of the porter's bell and the rattling of the chase, came bounding open-mouthed across the lawn. The little dogs and all, Trey, Blanche, and Sweetheart, See, they bark at me, cried Bracebridge, laughing. At the sound of his voice, the bark was changed into a yelp of delight, and in a moment, he was surrounded and almost overpowered by the caresses of the faithful animals. We had now come in full view of the old family mansion, partly thrown in deep shadow and partly lit up by the cold moonshine. It was an irregular building of some magnitude and seemed to be the architecture of different periods. One wing was, evidently, very ancient, with heavy stone-shafted bow windows jutting out and overrun with ivy, from among the foliage of which the small diamond-shaped panes of glass glitter with the moonbeams. The rest of the house was in the French taste of Charles II's time, having been repaired and altered, as my friend told me, by one of his ancestors, who returned with that monarch at the Restoration. The grounds about the house were laid out in the old formal manner of artificial flower beds, clipped shrubberies, raised terraces, and heavy stone balustrades, ornamented with urns, a leaden statue or two, and a jet of water. The old gentleman, I was told, was extremely careful to preserve this obsolete finery and all its original state. He admired this fashion in gardening. It had an air of magnificence, was courtly and noble, and befitting good old family style. The boasted imitation of nature in modern gardening had sprung up with modern republican notions, but did not sue a monarchical government. It smacked of the leveling system. I could not help 
smiling at this introduction of politics into gardening, though I expressed some apprehension that I should find the old gentleman rather intolerant in his creed. Frank assured me, however, that it was almost the only instance in which he had never heard his father meddle with politics, and he believed that he had got this notion from a member of parliament who once passed a few weeks with him. The squire was glad of any argument to defend his clipped yew trees and formal terraces, which had been occasionally attacked by modern landscape gardeners. As we approached the house, we heard the sound of music, and now and then a burst of laughter from one end of the building. This, Bracebridge said, must proceed from the servants' hall, where a great deal of revelry was permitted, and even encouraged by the squire throughout the twelve days of Christmas, provided everything was done comfortably to ancient usage. Here were kept up the old games of hoodman blind, shoe the wild mare, hot cockles, steal the white loaf, bob apple and snapdragon. The yule log and Christmas candle were regularly burnt, and the mistletoe, with its white berries, hung up to the imminent peril of all the pretty housemaids. So intent were the servants upon their sports that we had to ring repeatedly before we could make ourselves heard. On our arrival being announced, a squire came out to receive us, accompanied by his two other sons, one a young officer in the army, home on leave of absence, the other in Oxonia, just from the university. The squire was a fine, healthy-looking old gentleman, with silver hair curling lightly round an open, florid countenance, and which a physiognomist, with the advantage, like myself, of a previous hint or two, might discover a singular mixture of whim and benevolence. The family meeting was warm and affectionate, as the evening was far advanced. The squire would not permit us to change our traveling dresses, but ushered us at once to the company, which was assembled in a large, old-fashioned hall. It was composed of different branches of a numerous family connection, where there were usual proportion of old uncles and aunts, comfortably married dames, superannuated spinsters, blooming country cousins, half-fledged striplings, and bright-eyed boarding-school hoydens. They were variously occupied, some at a round game of cards, others conversing around a fireplace. At one end of the hall was a group of young folks, some nearly grown up, others of a more tender and budding age, fully engrossed by a merry game and a profusion of wooden horses, penny trumpets, and tattered dolls about the floor showed traces of a troop of little fairy beings who, having frolicked through a happy day 
have been carried off to slumber through a peaceful night. While the mutual greetings were going on between Bracebridge and his relatives, I had time to scan the apartment. I'd have called it a hall, for so it had certainly been in old times, and the squire had evidently endeavored to restore it to something of its primitive state. Over the heavy, projecting fireplace was suspended a picture of a warrior in armor standing by a white horse, and on the opposite wall hung a helmet, buckler, and lance. At one end, an enormous pair of antlers were inserted in the wall, the branches serving as hooks on which to suspend hats, whips, and spurs. And in the corners of the apartment were fowling pieces, fishing rods, and other sporting implements. The furniture was of the cumbrous workmanship of former days, though some articles of modern convenience had been added, and the oaken floor had been carpeted so that the whole presented an odd mixture of parlor and hall. The grate had been removed from the wide overwhelming fireplace to make way for a fire of wood, in the midst of which was an enormous log glowing and blazing and sending forth a vast volume of light and heat. This, I understood, was the Yule log, with which the squire was particular in having brought in and illuminated on a Christmas Eve, according to ancient custom. It was really delightful to see the old squire seated in his hereditary elbow chair by the hospitable fireside of his ancestors and looking around him like the sun of a system beaming warmth and gladness to every heart even the very dog that lay stretched at his feet as he lazily shifted his position and yawned would look fondly up in his master's face wag his tail against the floor and stretch himself again to sleep confident of the kindness and protection. There is an emanation from the heart and genuine hospitality which cannot be described, but is immediately felt and puts the stranger at once at his ease. I had not been seated many minutes by the comfortable hearth of the worthy cavalier before I found myself as much at home as if I had been one of the family. Supper was announced shortly after our arrival. It was served up in a spacious oaken chamber, the panels of which shone with wax, and around which were several family portraits decorated with holly and ivy. Beside the accustomed lights, two great wax tapers, called Christmas candles, wreathed with greens, were placed on a highly polished buffet among the family plate. The table was abundantly spread with substantial fare, but the squire made his supper of frumenty 
a dish made of wheat cakes boiled in milk with rich spices. A dish made of wheat cakes boiled in milk with rich spices being a standing dish in old times for Christmas Eve. I was happy to find my old friend minced pie in the retinue of the feast and finding him to be perfectly orthodox and that I need not be ashamed of my predilection. I greeted him with all the warmth wherewith we usually greet an old and very genteel acquaintance. The mirth of the company was greatly promoted by the humors of an eccentric personage whom Mr. Bracebridge always addressed with a quaint appellation of Master Simon. He was a tight, brisk little man with the air of an errant old bachelor. His nose was shaped like the bill of a parrot, his face slightly pitted with a smallpox, with a dry, perpetual bloom on it like a frost-bitten leaf in autumn. He had an eye of great quickness and vivacity, with a drollery and lurking waggery of expression that was irresistible. He was evidently the wit of the family, dealing very much in sly jokes and innuendos with the ladies, and making infinite merriment by harpings upon old themes, which, unfortunately, my ignorance of the family chronicles did not permit me to enjoy. It seemed to be his great delight during supper to give a young girl next to him in a continual agony of stifled laughter, in spite of her awe of the reproving looks of her mother, who sat opposite. Indeed, he was the idol of the younger part of the company, who laughed at everything he said or did at every turn of his countenance. I could not wonder at it, for he must have been a miracle of accomplishments in their eyes. He could imitate Punch and Judy, make an old woman of his hand with the assistance of a burnt cork and pocket handkerchief, and cut an orange into such a ludicrous character that the young folks were ready to die with laughing. I was let briefly into his history by Frank Bracebridge. He was an old bachelor of a small independent income, which by careful management was sufficient for all his wants. He revolved through the family system like a vagrant comet in its orbit, sometimes visiting one branch and sometimes another quite remote, as is often the case with gentlemen of extensive connections and small fortunes in England. He had a chirping, buoyant disposition, always enjoying the present moment, and his frequent change of scene and company prevented his acquiring those rusty, unaccommodating habits with which old bachelors are so uncharitably charged. He was a complete family chronicle, being versed in the genealogy, history, and intermarriages of the whole house of Bracebridge, which made him a great favorite with the old folks. He was a beau of all the elder ladies and superannuated spinsters, 
among whom he was habitually considered rather a young fellow, and he was a master of the revels among the children, so that there was not a more popular being in the sphere in which moved than Mr. Simon Bracebridge. Of late years he had resided almost entirely with the squire, to whom he had become a factotum, and whom he particularly delighted by jumping with his humor and respect to old times, and by having a scrap of an old song to suit every occasion. We had presently a specimen of his last mentioned talent, for no sooner was supper removed and spiced wines and other beverages peculiar to the season introduced, that Master Simon was called on for a good old Christmas song. He bethought himself for a moment, and then, with a sparkle of the eye and a voice that was by no means bad, excepting that it ran occasionally into a falsetto, like the notes of a split reed, he quavered forth a quaint old ditty. Now Christmas has come, let us beat the drum and call all our neighbors together, and when they appear, let us make them such cheer as will keep out the wind and the weather. The supper had disposed everyone to gaiety, and an old harper was summoned from the servants' hall, where he had been strumming all the evening, and to all appearance comforting himself with some of the squire's homebrewed. He was a kind of hanger-on, I was told, of the establishment, and though ostensibly a resident of the village, was oftener to be found in the squire's kitchen than his own home, the old gentleman being fond of the sound of harp and hall. The dance, like most dances after supper, was a merry one. Some of the older folks joined in it, and the squire himself figured down several couples with a partner with whom he affirmed he had danced at every Christmas for nearly half a century. Master Simon, who seemed to be a kind of connecting link between the old times and the new, and to be withal a little antiquated in the taste of his accomplishments, evidently piqued himself on his dancing, and was endeavoring to gain credit by the heel and toe, rigadoon, and other graces of the ancient school but he had unluckily assorted himself with a little romping girl from boarding school who, by her wild vivacity, kept him continually on the stretch and defeated all his sober attempts at elegance. Such are the assorted matches to which antique gentlemen are unfortunately prone. The young Oxonian, on the contrary, had let out one of his maiden aunts, on whom the rogue played a thousand little knaveries with impunity. He was full of practical jokes, and his delight was to tease his aunts and cousins. Yeah, like all madcap youngsters, he was a universal favorite among the women. The most interesting couple in the dance was the young officer and a ward of the squires, a beautiful blushing girl of seventeen, 
from several shy glances which I had noticed in the course of the evening, I suspected that there was a little kindness growing up between them. And indeed, the young soldier was just the hero to captivate a romantic girl. He was tall, slender, and handsome, and like most young British officers of late years, had picked up various small accomplishments on the continent. He could talk French and Italian, draw landscapes, sing very tolerably, dance divinely. But above all, he had been wounded at Waterloo. What girl of seventeen, well-read in poetry and romance, could resist such a mere of chivalry and perfection? The moment the dance was over, he caught up a guitar and lolling against the old marble fireplace in an attitude which I am half inclined to suspect was studied, began the little French air of the troubadour. The squire, however, exclaimed against having anything on Christmas Eve but good old English, upon which the young minstrel, casting up his eye for a moment, as if in an effort of memory, struck into another strain, and with a charming air of gallantry, gave Herrick's night piece to Julia. Her eyes, the glowworm, lend thee, the shooting stars attend thee, and the elves also, whose little eyes glow like the sparks of fire, befriend thee. No will of the wisp mislight thee, nor snake or glowworm bite thee, but on thy way not making a stay, since ghost there is none to affright thee. Then let not the dark thee cumber, what though the moon does slumber. The stars of the night will lend thee their light, like tapers clear without number. Then, Julia, let me woo thee, Thus, thus to come unto me, and when I shall meet thy silvery fee, my soul I'll pour into thee. The song might have been intended in compliment to the fair Julia, or so I found his partner was called, or it might not. She, however, was certainly unconscious of any such application, for she never looked at the singer but kept her eyes cast upon the floor. Her face was suffused, it is true, with a beautiful blush, and there was a gentle heaving of the bosom, but all that was doubtless caused by the exercise of the dance. Indeed, so great was her indifference that she was amusing herself with plucking to pieces a choice bouquet of hothouse flowers. And by the time the song was concluded, the nosegay lay in ruins on the floor. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.